This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Which one is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good right. luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. This is the Irish Times, second captain's podcast, Owen Murph and Ken. All here. Hi, Ken. Hi, Murph. Good, Owen. No, no, no. I'm going through the motions today, Murph. I'm pouring nothing of myself into this podcast. You guys can be as energetic idea. as you like. I think that's a bad idea. Oh. Kind of feels like there's a scene in Don McRae's book, Dark Trade, that boxing, brilliant boxing book that he wrote. He has befriended James Tony, the great boxer, the sort of 90s actually. Uh, accompanies him to a fight. Could have been against Roy Jones Jr. Actually, anyway, his mega fight that he's involved in is possibly his first ever defeat. And he goes backstage afterwards with him back to his hotel, I think, where there's all this. The post-match party is ready to go. Mm. Post-fight party is ready to go, and he. Goes there as himself, James Tony, James Tony's wife, and I think that's about it at this party. Um, and that's kind of how I'm feeling at the moment. Mm. It was sort of, it was, we, we had planned to be celebrating our large Nina Day Murph. We're not celebrating, but we got to talk about it anyway. Yeah, yeah. Pretty numb feeling. The last 10 minutes of that game were just. You've got Fernandez Labe exhorting the crowd. You've got the crowd appearing from all these Argentinians. I think what happened was at half time in the game, they all managed. To, I was sitting beside an Argentinian who was by himself, a very nice guy, straight out with the rosary beads as soon as the first minute, as soon as the match kicked mm-hmm. off. Had the rosary beads out, he had his scarf, he had all the, the uh, accompaniments that he needed. But by half time, they all seemed to find each other. And yeah. they, managed to move into, they managed to move some Irish people away so that they were all closer together in bigger pockets. I think that was part of the issue. And of course, when they were dominating the last few minutes, they kind of ran away with things. But it was all a little bit, um, bit numb. Yeah, yeah, very, just the most deflating experience that I can remember uh, uh, being a part of, I would say. Uh, very similar, actually, to losing, uh, no, well, d- there are differences. I mean, I've, my county lost an Ireland hurling final this, this year, for instance. That's not a barrel of laughs. Uh, but it's a different, it's a different thing. 
because of the hope. You know, and I, we, we didn't think... I always thought it was stupid for me to think that Gola could beat Kilkenny. I mean, looking back, I know that I was an idiot to think that that could ever happen. Uh, but this, I think we weren't idiots to think that we could beat Argentina. I think we did underestimate... The impact uh, of the injuries or... The, the impact of the injuries yeah. is the biggest thing. I, I See, it's, it's, it's interesting when you're watching it. Uh, I'm, well, listen, it's the same on the TV as it is from the stands, but um, when you're watching it, you can't say that a plan will win you a game. I mean, it's, it's, an, it's a ridiculous thing to say because a good plan depends on people doing jobs at an ex- extremely high level. Mm. And it's, it's not just the plan. The players have to have the ability to put the plan into, into, into play. And if you lose five of your best players, you can't replace them with five players and say, right, well, it's the same thing, really. You know? That's what we so far have been able to do, not to anywhere near that extent, but that has been, that's what gave us the hope that Joe Schmidt has done this before. Yeah. That guys have slotted in. And we, in retrospect, read too much into the French game and particularly how some players performed mm. in that game. It was, it was very different when you're starting from scratch. Obviously, Ian Madigan is a guy who didn't play well at out half, having been absolutely outstanding against France. We, I, I certainly got lulled in. To be honest, I was worried. I thought we would. there's a fair chance we we're going to lose this game. Um, but I, did, I, didn't, I didn't see that lack of performance. I didn't see that first 20 minutes coming, yeah. that first 10, 15 yeah. minutes coming. For I'll, I'll tell you actually what's, what's worse about what the worst thing about it is, is that not alone has this weekend ended our World Cup hopes, but it has in re- it's retrospectively demeaned our two Six Nations championships as well. Ah, no. Uh, it has. It definitely has. No, it, it hasn't. Really, it how, really, how has it? Because the Six Nations is, is clearly a, a low-class competition. Well, it's not a low-class competition. Compared to the elite level of the game. There are, ten, there are ten teams playing the competition, and the bottom six are all playing in the Six Nations. It's a competition and we play every year. We, we didn't even beat everybody in the Six Nations. We lost to Wales, who... On the basis of the World Cup, you'd have to say, no. look, the best team in the Northern Hemisphere. This is revisionism. Well, that's what so it is. I mean, I'm, I'm saying, what, what we're saying is we thought we were a lot closer to the top level of the game than we actually are. No, I think it's, I, I thought you were going to say it means the game against France, which it clearly does. But I don't think you can take away from the achievement of winning those tournaments either. You know, that just because Wales and England aren't as good as South Africa and New Zealand, that's our, that's our tournament. That's what we play in every year. And we've had many conversations about this where you think it's ridiculous how everyone focuses so much on the World Cup and how people talk about these four-year cycles when they should actually be focusing on winning Six Nations. For, for Ireland, we've won it so... It's not as though we've won the Six Nations eight out of the last ten years or something like yeah. that. It's a competition that, okay, maybe it's weak, maybe it's always been weaker than the Southern Hemisphere competitions, but it's one we've struggled to win. So I don't think we can take away th- from the fact... I, that I think we won years. the last two before a Rugby World Cup, which gave us a huge amount of hope it wasn't just winning the Six Nations in and of itself. And I'm 100%... Like, the fallacy of preparing for the World Cup... Talk to Wales and Ireland now about preparing for the Rugby World Cup. It's like, you know... It's a week all, week of your play- yeah. all of your yeah. players got lost in the, yeah. you know, the two weeks before the World Cup. So forget about the three years and, you know, whatever, 50 weeks before it, you know? The only way and, you can really prepare is by trying to make sure you've got a lot of good players. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah. there's no point in really trying to build a team because the team will be which players are available on the day. You know what I mean? The team, you have to have players who can who are capable of covering for each other. That's really, as far as I can see, the only way that you can prepare for it. A lot yeah. of it is then going to depend on how lucky you get. Yeah, but the, 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 the Six Nations wins were so exciting because 
not not just because we won the the mini league that we play in every year. It was also because we have every right to think that we can go to the World Cup and do really really well in it. And when see the thing the thing that I'm afraid will happen here is that sure look you know people will come to you and say sure look at the Scots you know the Scots were within but they didn't win the game and if they'd won the game it was because Australia took their eye off the ball to the most unacceptable level you can't say that Scotland didn't win one game in the Six Nations you know you you can't say that the Six Nations is in rude house because Wales almost beat the Springboks like I would say that the Springboks took Wales seriously as a team and nearly lost the game. I mean, you know, but from the point of view of the Australia game, you know, there is no reason for them to ever think that Scotland would beat them because Scotland didn't win a game this year. And if if the Scots went and, you know, managed to pull a result out, I don't think that says, oh, well, not alone does that mean uh, Australia took drive off the ball. It also means Scotland are brilliant. And it also means the Six Nations is in rude health. I mean, it can't. You know, and I, like, the, that's, the, that's the sickener. Like, we have to sit and listen to... Everyone else saying that we bottled it because we can talk about injuries and all the rest. At the end of the day, we have not qualified for a World Cup semi-final. Yeah, we can't. The inauguration of this tournament, and there's no, we can't. There's no argument that we can say that says actually, yeah, fair enough. We'll let you off. And we can't analyze what would have happened if we hadn't had the injuries. That's just not what happened. We had the injuries and we didn't deal with it. We didn't. We had that comeback, which which ultimately ended nowhere. You want to come back in there? Well, I, I mean, I don't think you use the phrase bottled. I mean, I don't think that happened. I just think they weren't good enough. And I mean, Argentina were 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 just better. Even the players who were there played badly, though. I think Argentina would have beaten us with those players. It's 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 hard to know, but for Chris Henry, for example. Played, played poorly you know I'm sorry we're you're picking out individual players but I thought there was a moment and this is maybe reading a bit too much into it near the end of the game when it was gone anyway it's when we were trying to hammer at the Argentinian line we won a penalty it was flung really gently like a lob pass like someone would do in training to Chris Henry just to take the tap penalty and he nearly dropped it he sort of fumbled it and then took the tap and just ran straight into somebody as you're going to do in that situation. I just thought, jeez. The, yeah. the nerves never dissipated, it seemed, from the performance. Sometimes that happens early on. So I do think even the team we had out there, I was, kind, I, I was kind of surprised. I thought Argentina were brilliant, personally. I know there's debates about how good they were and how good we made them look. Mm. I think they're just an absolutely excellent team and we continue to underrate them. But we really did make it easy for them at yeah, times. And I, th- I think, you know, sometimes the, it, it's not the game I grew up playing. But there are things that are obvious to just people watching, watching from the stands, watching at home. It doesn't matter. If guys can catch the ball and pass the ball a lot better than the, the opposing team, that's not something that, you know, that, that, doesn't, come down nec- that doesn't come down to a performance level. Yeah. What that is is just comfort with the ball. Skill. A skill. Yeah. And Argentina had more, like, way more skillful players than we had. Had way more players capable of being tackled and passing the ball out the back or offloading, they they just had more players that could do that well, and, well, and they well, were bigger. Well, the offloading is a slightly different issue uh, because that's a coaching decision as much as anything. Yeah, maybe the coaching decision is made, made on the basis because that we, don't we have can't the players, that are, players Isn't that the logic? I mean, I assume that, that, that the reason for that was that Schmidt had kind of looked at it and said, well, your players aren't good enough to play this way, so let's not do it. Kind of a Trapatoni-like, let's, um, let's limit the amount of things we do which, are, which, which we can't really do. And let's try and concentrate on the things we can. In a nutshell, do. that's what that's what he did. Yeah, and that's what he you know, decided when he took over. And there is always, uh, there is always a, when when you're trying to do that. Okay, that that may well have been the best thing to do, but it's also a little bit, you know. I mean, we can't ultimately we don't have the players really to play that kind of way. But if you want to win, 
if you want to if you want to get to the semi final of a World Cup, you need you need to be able to do that. You can't you can't pretend that the dimension of the game doesn't exist just I, because you're no you're no good at it. You have to get good at it. I, I actually think we do potentially have the players to play that way when they're all fit. If Sexton's back out there and if jo- if Sean O'Brien is there. Robbie Henshaw can offload as mm. much as he wants. Robbie Henshaw can spend all day offloading he was, if he, he wanted was really to. Good. Uh, he didn't. Make, there were a couple of loose passes yesterday, but yeah, as usual, he was pretty good. But uh, but just final word on that Six Nations point. I'm already. You saw the energy level that I had at the start of this program. Yes. You're, you're now telling me that our Six Nations two championships are worthless. It means I'm going to expire. I'm going to no, uh, literally I, expire here. I, I, I need to say There's a couple more points I, we need to make there. Number one. Not England, worthless, just demeaned. England by the way, that's France. the you know. It, I, di- I didn't say they were worthless. I just say it demeaned the importance. That's S- all. Sullied a little bit. I mean, England, England and France, you know, have lost their way in international rugby. You know, their clubs are dictating to their national teams about, you know, what to, you know what to do. The priorities have shifted away. You saw these bad England and France teams. Um, you know, we're beating not very good teams in that Six Nations. Enthusiasm. Levels. I, <laughs> I, I mean, you, you, the France New Zealand game was was unbelievable, and I mean, I, people say, "Oh, it was terrible by France," and obviously France did collapse to an extent towards the end, but that was an incredible display of rugby by New Zealand. Yeah. I mean, it, there are times when you have to say, "That is <laughs> not that Zealand. is exact, that is what the game can look like." You know, that's what a really good team playing really well looks like. It doesn't matter that France were a bad. France were a bad team. France. You know, didn't didn't have any heart. France did collapse, but they collapsed because they realised they were up against something unstoppable. You know, from there they couldn't possibly live with New Zealand. So in the end, they decided not to bother. Well, if we're feeling pretty bad about ourselves today, spare a thought for the poor Scots. First, the footballers blow it. Now the rugby team is denied in all time. At least we've still got our football team, Ken. Shock win <laughs> against Australia by a controversial refereeing decision. We were listening to this one in the car on the way from Cardiff to Bristol Airport. And we were blown, absolutely transfixed by this. This is the description of the closing stages on Radio 5 Live. Actually, the closing stages aren't so much inter- as interesting as what happens after. The ref gives that late penalty to Australia. It's knocked over brilliantly by Bernard Foley. Australia win the game. But it was what happened just, at the, just after the full-time whistle was blown that certainly caught the attention of Gavin Hastings. And who have we got here? It's Matt Dawson and Gavin Hastings. How disrespectful How is that? How disrespectful. That is the worst terrible. thing I have seen on a rugby field for a very long time. And he is not prepared to face up to the players. That is not rugby. That is not the spirit of rugby. And what he has done is done not only himself the greatest disservice, but he has done rugby a great disservice. It's disrespectful to the game. That encompasses everybody. The tournament, the fans, the sponsors, the viewers, the listeners. I mean, and, and look, you know, we're not, we will make a big deal of this because we're not exaggerating. He blew the final whistle, turned around and sprinted off the field. He didn't jog, he didn't shake the captain's hands, he didn't shake the players' hands. He sprinted 40 metres off the field under the tunnel. There's no exaggeration, there's no sour grapes. Don't give me any Southern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere bits and pieces. Mark, can I just say, he should be sent home tomorrow, straight back to South Africa. He should be punished and never allowed to make an international refereeing commitment again. He, that is just out of order. That was Craig Joubert they're talking about there, the referee in question, Simon. Are they going a little bit higher than the guy? In terms of, originally we were listening to the decision he made, it was a terrible decision, and to not to seek out assistant referees at such an important time. Uh, I think they were a little harsh on that, possibly, but on him running off straight away afterwards, they're pretty accurate. What do you think? Thrown out of, he should be thrown out of the game for not shaking someone's hand. <laughs> Come uh, on. 
Um, I thought at one point that Gavin Hastings had said that the next time he saw Craig Joubert, he was going to kill him. Oh, yeah, he says that. I'm going to... But actually, it was tell him... That you're there a disgrace. There is something in the sort of plummy Scottish uh, sort of uh, border accent that Gavin Hastings had that meant kill and tell sound quite similar. Very similar, but now he's not going to kill, not murderous intent announced on the public airwaves, <laughs> but, uh, but says, we, so she wouldn't want to run into him anyway. We were listening to that on the way back, feeling absolutely awful after the Argentina game. <laughs> And all I was thinking was, well, how are Scotland going to conjure up a loss here? I mean, every it looked by their commentary, they were so excited. It seemed as if Scotland played brilliantly throughout. But in my mind, I was just thinking, well, it's it's Scotland. It's happen. I put them in the same category as Ireland, I suppose. Unfortunately, that's the way Scottish fans probably think as well. We'll get to Tom English and that a little bit later on. We're going to have loads more Rugby World Cup chat on Wednesday night. We've got a live podcast coming with thanks to Rabo Direct in the Sugar Club in Dublin. That's where we're recording that one. And we will put that out as a podcast for you as well. It'll be ready on Thursday. Shane Horgan coming up. Uh, Shane Horgan is actually ready to go so let's get cracking into this Shane the, uh, there was a quote from Wayne Smith of the Australian who says that this loss confirmed Ireland as the worst chokers in World Cup history was it a choke? Um, I thought it's an interesting quote I'd never heard it quite like put quite like that um, I think our um, history now <laughs> doesn't look great on paper does it? Um, if you look at the last couple of World Cups in particular um, 2007, we went in with huge expectation and and had a, you know, quite a, a terrible uh, World Cup. Um, every one of the performances was poor. And then um, 2011, when things were looking really good again, we had a one eye on the semi final and we didn't perform against um, against Wales. But I think you can only take the group of players that um, have taken the pitch and the. Every time of a World Cup there is different. I think there was a different set of circumstances this time around. Um, And I don't know if um, we would have seen the type of performance we saw out of Ireland yesterday if we had had the full hand. Now, not everyone has their full hand every time they take the field. But um, I think it may have been different if we were full strength. And um, the problem is, I don't think we're ever going to be taken seriously by the Southern Hemisphere teams, really, until we do make a semi-final of a World Cup or better, because that's really the only barometer for you know for world achievement. And whatever we say about Six Nations, um, they're certainly not valued by um, by the Southern Hemisphere teams. They don't put the value on them that we do. Until we do something special in the World Cup, we're going to always have to face that criticism, unfortunately. That, well, you, the phrase you use is interesting that they don't take us seriously. It's something that I've heard a, a few of the players um, talk about. A few of the experts, you know, Brian O'Driscoll has said that a few times that New Zealand clearly just don't have any respect for us. Why would they? We've never beaten them. This kind of thing. Is that part of it for you that this is a self perpetuating problem now that because we keep losing in these games, because we keep underperforming at the knockout stages of the World Cup? we don't get respect from other countries and that also feeds into their confidence when they come up against us at these stages. Well, I think there is an element of that and you have to remember um, we don't beat the Southern Hemisphere's opposition very often. Well, you know, up until recently we didn't beat them at all um, and we still haven't beaten New Zealand. Uh, I think now we're capable and we have done a number of times we've beaten South Africa and Australia and I actually think we're, we feel quite comfortable against those teams in the Autumn Internationals but they never go into those autumn internationals caring about them as much as they do about the um, the rugby championship or as as they do against the world uh, during the world cup so you know 
when Ireland get to number three in the world, or I think there were two at the world at one stage, you know, they don't take it seriously. They say, well, this is not based on, you know, when everybody is, is, is firing and when everybody um, is on the same sort of level and it's, it's like with like. And the only times that you do that is in competition. And we only see them in competition, unfortunately, once every uh, four years. And until we prove that, until we prove that we can you know, beat the teams, Southern Hemisphere teams in the, the knockout stages of the World Cup, um, they, won't, they won't respect us. And, and New Zealand never fear us. They don't. And why should they? As Brian said there, uh, we haven't beaten them in over 100 years. Um, we haven't performed against uh, big teams in the World Cup. And as I said, if, until we do so, um, we, we'll won't be, we won't be respected. Shane, what I don't understand about the first 10 minutes of that game is that Argentina know almost nothing but losses. I think they have two wins in the last two years in the rugby championship. And Ireland know nothing but wins besides a couple of losses in the last couple of Six Nations. And whatever about the quality of the opposition they're facing, that is a habit. And you guys have talked about that a lot, both with Ireland and with Leinster and Munster. Um, how do those first 10 minutes go that way then? Yeah, listen, it's a habit winning, but having, you can only, it is compromised by you know, who you're playing against. And we've seen... It's been demonstrated never more clearly than this World Cup that the Northern Hemisphere opposition just isn't anywhere near as good as Southern Hemisphere. We've seen, you know, France. We're talking about France for years, and we how are delighted are we to get a win over France in the in the Six Nations? And how few times have we done it? And look at what how they've performed over the last uh, eight years when they've had to play any Southern Hemisphere opposition. You know, but one performance against um, New Zealand aside in the World Cup final, which they still lost. Um, they're not at the races, and I, I think. We've seen quite a bit of that from all the Six Nations um, um, teams. Albeit Scotland uh, came so close and probably should have beaten Australia. Wales were in a similar situation to us with all the injuries and they were playing South Africa and very nearly won that one. It seems like, okay, neither of them won, but at least they performed. And yet Ireland, once again, the World Cup quarterfinal, didn't, don't even have the solace of feeling like we really gave that a rattle. Well, I think, you know, Ultimately, both those teams still lost, and that's going to continue on the thing that you mentioned earlier on about how we're viewed in Northern Hemisphere teams um, against Southern Hemisphere teams and how they view us and how actually we view them, because ultimately the two Southern Hemisphere teams came out on top in those two games. Now, from an Ireland perspective, um, to say we didn't perform, certainly in the, the first 20 minutes we got blown out of the, out of the, the water, um, I think we didn't look physically strong enough. I think we started running, a couple of times we ran laterally, and uh, they actually destroyed us in the tackle. Now, that's kind of really disappointing that we did that because if you see even the body shape of New Zealanders, not all of them are as big as those Argentinians were on display at the weekend. But what they do is they never put themselves in a weak body position. So it's a big step, it's an inside shoulder, and it makes things a lot easier. If you're running directly into guys or you're running laterally, then you give Argentina or any opposition um, the opportunity to make big tackles. That coupled with ourselves not getting off the line or, or throwing our bodies just as quickly as the Argentinians did in defence meant that you know we got bullied in that first 20 minutes. But that said, we still had the opportunity to win that game. And it was there. And it was a couple of moments uh, in the second half. And I was, I've been really looking at the body language of both teams the whole way through the game. Because I, I could see it. I was at the game. I could see it up close. And Argentina were looking like Superman at the start of the game. Like there was chest out. Uh, they were all standing tall. Ireland were heads down. They weren't actually talking to each other. There wasn't much communication going on. And they looked like a beaten team. And at one point, I thought they were going to get beaten by 40. But that changed. And in the second half, the beginning of the, uh, the first you know, 15 minutes in the second half, when Ireland put their spirit on, 
Argentina looked tired and there was an opportunity to win the game still. So we could have done that, but we just didn't. And if that's a choke or if it's not, or if it's as a consequence of not having our best players, um, I'm not sure. I think it's actually the latter, though. Yeah, that point you make about the lack of communication amongst the players, something that Ken actually mentioned, and uh, having not been to a huge amount of rugby games, it was interesting that he picked that up. He was like, hang on a second, we're behind, our, we've conceded a second try here. There's clearly massive issues, and nobody really seems to be taking this by the scruff of the deck. Obviously, you know, there's a clear answer as to why that was, in that we're missing all these leaders, but we had enough, did we not have enough time? Are there not other guys, can you not just tell Conor Murray, right, you're the leader now, or tell Robbie Henshaw, okay, I know you're, you're only 23 years of age, but you're one of our best players. You're the guy now who's going to actually make those calls and, and try to fix these issues. But listen, you'd be sure that conversation was had and Joe Schmidt would have gone to a group of players and spoken to them individually and said, we're down our big leaders at the moment or people who um, who speak a lot and we need, you know, we need you to step up in that role. But listen, those roles aren't easily filled because it's in some per- people's personalities to to speak up and to be vocal and to rally troops and in other people it's not and it can be you know it can be very challenging for for some people to do that and I remember in my time in the Irish team we always felt that we didn't have enough people um, who could speak now in retrospect I think we had quite a few people but we just didn't have enough in key air in some of the key areas in the forwards and I remember uh, we were saying that we it's another skill to have as much as you know you need to be able to catch a high ball or you need to take a line out this is a skill that you have to develop because it's key to success and I think yeah communication was something that did uh, let us down and I do, will say as well, if you're losing a game and you're, you're sort of shell-shocked like that, it takes a big personality to sort of put their own worries about their own game aside and look at the bigger picture. And uh, maybe there's guys that weren't used to that and they, they couldn't step up and do it at the weekend. Shane, that first try looked preventable. It looked like there was issues in the Irish defence and there was all day. I mean, we did get back into that game, but ultimately, whenever Argentina went through a few phases, it looked really dangerous for us. Um, yeah. is, is that passive defence ever deliberate or is that a mindset thing? No, pass, there's a time for passive defence. Okay, there's, and so it's, it's important that you don't confuse that if you're not racing out of the line and stopping everyone behind the gain line, that that means the defence isn't going well. Um, for example, if the Argentinians carry very well in and around the ruck, which they did, they made big yardage there a couple of times and if, they have a, if you have a little bu- a semi-bust, not get quite the way through the line, but everybody's um, has to commit to it. Maybe you have to put two or three in that ruck to stop it or that tackle. And then people are, are racing back to the defensive line as opposed to getting off it. Uh, under that circumstances, you do have to go uh, soft because you don't have numbers down. So you have to, you know, you, you, that's the correct way to defend. Now, you still have to defend um, correctly as an individual um, within that system. And that's what happened for the first try against um, Argentina. Um, I think we had numbers on. There wasn't an issue with that. But just for a second, Dave Carney was sat down and uh, then was nipped around by the Argentinian attacker. I think it was Imhoff, was it? That, that, or maybe Tuchelet. Yeah, that, I think uh, it was Imhoff, yeah. It was a, that sat him down. And it was unusual. You know, Dave Carney um, isn't a slow guy. He doesn't make a huge amount of mistakes in defence. But, you know, that was just one of the situations where his footwork beat him uh, and then it, it caused, uh, um, you know, the overlap and it was a really simple try. But that wasn't a, that wasn't a systems defense, uh, mistake. It was, a, it was an individual error. Before this World Cup ever started, the one criticism possibly of Joe Schmidt was the offloading or the lack of risk-taking. 
four or two tries, four or two great moments in that game. Um, the first one, uh, Conor Murray gathered from an Argentinian chip through. He offloaded in the tackle. Robbie Henshaw also wasn't quite an offload, but it was a short pop pass to Luke who then beat his man for the try. And then in the second try, Luke made a great break, obviously, but he also then offloaded in the tackle. So, you know, the, the, the only reason we were in that game was because of offloading. Listen, it's a valid uh, criticism uh, of Joe's. Uh, and it's been one that's been going on for a while. It's a, and I think whether it's a skill that um, isn't practiced enough or if it's a skill that... Uh, players feel inhibited about um, performing, then whatever it is, it, that's, that doesn't matter. But what's important is that we have to bring it more into our game. And I think you know, there was something to be said about maybe a skill deficit as well. Um, certainly our centres, and, and this, both Henderson and Earls have had really some special moments in this tournament and done a lot of things right. But I think you also saw that there... Their you know skill level um, certainly with the ball in hand isn't where it should be for if you want to go to the you know top four if you want to go to World Cup finals. Um, so I think we've learned something from that. But as you said, our um, our offloading game is pretty much non-existent, and I think that we have to be prepared to accept a certain amount of risk. And um, we've seen you know offloading by the All Blacks offloading. Um, by South Africa and it's what wins games because you have to collapse down around it you generally suck in two players and uh, it leaves holes now um, whether Irish players aren't comfortable doing that or not it doesn't really matter it has to be addressed um, because otherwise it, it makes things very very difficult It's been so glaring in this World Cup as well you, probably right from the moment Japan beat South Africa you're thinking well hang on these Japanese players shouldn't be up to our level and yet they can play this amazing brand of rugby. So many great matches where teams are flinging the ball around and it, it, it starts to Canada, look a little Canada, crazy. Fiji. Canada, Fiji. All these teams, Fiji I suppose, have always been amazing at that that's kind of their game. But was Joe caught a little bit on the hop, do you think? Might it even have surprised him how proficient most of the other big teams are in this area? Um, and this is probably the first time this has happened maybe that Joe's been caught behind the eight ball a little bit? I think it's how important is it um, to the game, not whether other teams are good at it, because that's really an issue for a, de- a defensive perspective and, and being able to stop their offload and have the structures in place to crowd the passing channels to make it less effective. But it's more what can he get out of his players and uh, what's the best way to break down um, opposition defences. Now, we know Joe is very tactical, very strategic, and he tries to you know, really dissect an opposition defence, and he has done that on many occasions. And we've seen clean busts, or we've seen soft shoulders, um, that you can see, yes, that's gone completely off the training park. Um, as you know, and not just off the training park, but off the, the whiteboard. It's been drawn up, and he said, if everybody does everything right here, then we'll score a try because there, there will be a hole or someone will, will give up an inside shoulder. Now, what's interesting about an offload game is um, that that's, it's not um, preordained. It's not uh, pre-described where you go, okay, I'm going to get this ball to um, Henshaw here and um, we're going to you know, try and get him to get an offload. Now, you can do that to some degree. But I don't think that's the sort of mentality at the moment of our of Irish players. And uh, I think, you know, we, we also have to think about how we carry the ball into contact mm-hmm. and how aggressive our fight is. 
and how important it is. Now, we have a big emphasis on the ball placement uh, when we hit the deck, which is great. I didn't think it was as good as it should be at the weekend because I think physically we were bullied a little bit by the Argentinians. But I think we have to think about how we can get ourselves into positions to get offloads going. And that means that we have to stop um, you know, running into players directly. And I think we had a lot of that at the weekend. We're straight into the, you know, the, the chest of the opposition. It's not a smart move. You, know, you need to put that heavy step on either side. And we see this from small um, New Zealand backs. I know New Zealand have some big guys, but they've also got some smaller guys. And uh, they can take a step and they're just power through. And they look for the offload then. You know, Dan Carter is a perfect example of that. He's always looking to get that offload going. He's, he's not a monster. He's not the biggest guy in the world. He's just very powerful and very domineering when he takes the ball into contact or through contact. The other thing that's been really noticeable in this World Cup, Shane, is that our aerial game was one of our strengths. It was one of the things we that won us a lot of games in the Six Nations. But now teams like Wales, Argentina, Australia, they're all arguably better than us. They have individuals who are actually gathering balls better than even our best guys, uh, such as Rob and Dave Kearney. Well, I think you've picked out you know, the, some of the best ones there. Um, I think Wales have taken it to another level. And if you look at the... The individual skill of someone like Dan Bigger and what he's been doing, not just in this World Cup, he's been doing this for a while now, um, uh, the kick to regather. And it's it's causing real, real uh, issues for everyone he plays against. So he's exceptionally good at that. I think um, the, the um, Welsh, like ourselves, they take pride in dominating the air. And if you remember... And uh, when they beat us in the Six Nations, it was pri- that was the primary reason um, for them doing that because uh, they could control the air and was in, uh, in an area where we thought we would dominate. Um, I think Australia are excellent there as well. Listen, New Zealand are strong and and it's always been an area of strength for Argentina. It's not going to be easy. Like we're not going to be able to dominate teams um, with our kicking game um, it, at the you know in the in the really white hot intensity of um, World Cup. But what you have to do is you have to try and make it effective for you. Um, so you don't expect to completely dominate or win every battle, but you have to give yourself as you know big an opportunity as you can to um, to get that ball back. And when you do to do that, you actually have to get your kicking game almost perfect. And our kicking game hasn't been, and it wasn't great. From uh, you know Connor had a few a number of kicks that weren't great, and also um, Madigan. So. Um, it's not about dominating the opposition in these areas because that's too difficult, but it's also, it is about winning your fair share of ball. On the mental side of things, Shane, is there an argument that for some reason we're just not a good tournament team, but certainly a good World Cup team? I mean, you know, you go back to the ones you were involved in 2003, everyone really enjoyed that tournament, the players, the fans, it was great mingling. 2007, the opposite of that in terms of being isolated away from everything. But neither of them ended well. And then 2011 uh, d- didn't go brilliantly in the end. 2015, it seemed like all the players were certainly had in pl- staying in the best places they could possibly stay in. Everything was, was put on a plate for them. They seemed to be having a great time. And even then, when we get to the quarterfinal, mentally we seemed maybe a percent or two off it. Is, is there a theme there or do you have to analyse all these things absolutely separately? Yeah, I, listen, there's nobody involved in, Irish, uh, in the Irish team that, that played in 2003, you know, that's not, that, that's not an issue. So you have to 
look at indiv- each individual tournament. You have to look at the build-up to, and um, then you del- whether you delivered or you didn't, and and what are the reasons for that. And I think there's you know there's been different reasons in each World Cup. Um, so I don't think it do- it doesn't look great from the outside in, and it looks like this is a common trait um, in Irish rugby. But I don't see it as a common trait. I just see it as having have we haven't got past. Uh, the quarterfinal for different reasons. But what's the reason? Think, well, what's the reason? I, main, I think there is yeah. a valid. I think there is a valid reason to what's gone on this time. I can't. I don't think you can diminish the loss of five players and such key players either. We lost our primary ball carrier in Sean O'Brien. He's our best ball carrier, and he was really missed the weekend. He also normally gets a couple of turnovers as well. Um, that's an issue. Um, I think um, Jonathan Sexton losing him. He is, you know, probably our best player and in our most important position. And in a game that really necessitated him and his skill set, we were without it. Peter Manny is a pack leader and has consistently got us big yards over uh, the last you know two years and always a couple of turnovers. And Paul O'Connell, you know, it's strange to say Paul might be one of the, the ones that was missed fewer, but we did have um, an impact. We liked having an impact of, of Henderson coming off the bench as well. So these are key and they can't be underestimated. And you can't, you know, you can't, um, sweep that under the carpet um, we just can't expose um, five guys uh, to a quarterfinal of um, a World Cup and expect them to be as good and play as well as the five guys that um, they're replacing because if they were as good as them they would be starting in that team and they, I'm afraid they just weren't and at the moment we just don't have the depth to deal with those sort of injuries. Would you add Keen Healy into that list of players who there was a problem with? I mean, we were talking about this uh, afterwards in, in, in the drive out of Cardiff. That it's it's just. I mean, he clearly didn't play to his potential. Didn't quite look as confident in himself in his ball carrying as he usually does, which is pretty understandable. When you've had a serious neck surgery and you've barely played any rugby in months and months. He even seemed to, I, I thought he was hobbling a little bit, to be honest, in the first half yesterday. That might have been a separate issue. But when, when your body, when you're someone like Keen Healy, who from the age of whatever uh, age you, <laughs> he was, is always super confident in what he's doing. He's, he's always the biggest guy, always the strongest guy. Is a situation where he's in a World Cup and suddenly he, may, he maybe doesn't trust himself fully to do the things that he usually does? Well, I don't know about that, but what you have to remember is it is a World Cup quarterfinal. It is against a really good team in Argentina who are going to be a, a match for anyone. We've seen them in the opening game of the World Cup. So what you can't expect is the same um, dominance in performance um, that you see from Ireland in the Six Nations. That's just not going to happen. And it's I'm reverting back to the to you bringing up the back three and in the air and how much we were dominated in the Six Nations. Yeah, we did, but we're still playing the Six Nations. This is a different thing. So it's much finer margins. It's much more difficult to dominate a game um, as we've seen Keen Healy do in his carries sometimes. He's playing against a really quality um, uh, pack in our Argentina and he's having to scrummage against some of these monsters as well. So there's an element of you know, draining uh, your energy just trying to do your basic job. And that's, the, that's another reason that you see, right, Keen wasn't carrying as much because he had to deal with his bread and butter first. And that's, we, we see Sean O'Brien gone. That's maybe some of the slack that he would have taken up. But you're right, listen, he, was, he didn't perform um, at his best. He's, 
he he had a injury coming into the into the um, tournament. Um, w- was it better to start with uh, Jack McGrath? We don't know. Jack came on; and he was phenomenal. I think yeah. he's a, one of the real success stories of the tournament, along with Ian Henderson. Um, we now have uh, a couple of props fighting for the same position that are, you know, pr- properly. Uh, I think world standard. I think you know Gra- McGrath with Luke Fitzgerald changed that game for Ireland and put us in a position where you know we might have won it. Shane, just lastly, I don't even want to ask this question, but and maybe it escaped some people's attention, this story linking Joe Schmidt with the England Post during the week. It was brought up at the press conference and Joe said, look, I'm, uh, I'm not going chasing Stuart Lancaster's job. And then it was forgotten about because there was so much going on. Please tell me that we're not going to lose Joe Schmidt to England. I'm not certain. I'm really not certain. Really? I think Joe said that he wasn't interested in chasing uh, Lancaster's job, and I know he isn't, but Lancaster mightn't be in a job pretty soon, and I would almost guarantee he wouldn't be in a job pretty soon. And all of a sudden, there's a vacant position um, to go into coach an English team that um, is has the most you know, financial muscle of any team in the world. It's probably the most sought-after job in rugby, second only to uh, the All Blacks job. And um, I think they they would be smart to go after Joe. Um, I'd be incredibly disappointed if he left. But if I was Joe Smith, um, uh, I think you'd have to give it serious consideration because that's a good England side. Um, there, there's a bones of a very good side. They have a huge amount of financial muscle. There'll be hugely um, profitable remuneration for Joe. Um, and, um, you know, he's probably thinking, what, what more am I going to do with Ireland? And what more can I do? Now, I know he's got a contract for a couple more years, but um, like most of these things, there's normally exit um, clauses. Um, if I, and if I, if I was the president of the RFU or if I was the top brass there, I'd, I'd be going for Joe Smith. Um, so I don't think we've heard the last of this story. I'd be surprised um, if there isn't a few more turns in the tail. And, um, you know, if Joe Smith goes, I could see that happening. Right. Well, Shane, that's exactly the wrong answer. But uh, but thanks any much anyway for your contribution. Thanks. See you. Bye. So he's almost like having a second captain, isn't he? Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know what happened? When John was young. Everyone in the city knew about it, but no one had seen it. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Oh, dear. I'm officially, I'm now officially worried about, this is not a good day at all for, for me, Murph. It's all about me here today, how I'm feeling about things. I am, ah, this is. Probably didn't need to hear that at the end. No. That is true. Shane, just tell us what we, tell us what we want to hear here. Uh, no, I'm going to be. No, uh, Owen, I'll stop you before you even get a chance to ask that question. Uh, he took Irish citizenship. That's the yeah, end of the, that's the, end of the argument. Nobody does. about that. That's interesting that Shane feels it's. A serious runner. I mean, of course, they should try to appoint him, or they should. At they least will definitely him as try to appoint him, and they will throw loads of money at him. It's a matter of whether he thinks the English players 
Well, no, how much he really enjoys the job. He clearly loves Ireland. He was here before he ever came here as a national coach. He was in Mullingar, obviously. Um, he has connections, loads of friends. He's deeply embedded in our culture. But it's a question of where he thinks his career will go next and whether he thinks England is better than the New Zealand job or whatever else might be on, on the cards. What I, mean, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he was to go purely for the obvious financial incentive. I mean, Joe Schmidt presumably is on some level trying to provide for his family. Um, you can earn three, four times as much for doing the same job than a lot of people would be tempted by that, especially when you've already done the job, for, you know, with a lot of distinction uh, for for a few years. And then it's then it's a case of, well, you know, am I going to keep doing this job forever? Especially coach like him, who's really intense, you know, the in, intense kind of coach. Do they, you know, is is that something that can be kept going at that sort of well, level of yeah. intensity for a year after year after year? I or don't sometimes know. It changes, you know. It's something. It's something I noticed about a few of the coaches. That Cheka was going through the absolute torture watching that last penalty. Heineken Mayer, the South African coach. I mean, that guy's going to do himself some serious damage by the end of this tournament. Well, he he's, goes he's, absolutely apeshit. He's got himself and Gatland have actually looked ill oh, in this tournament with stress. Oh. Genuinely ill. His head's going to pop off his shoulders, that, that guy. That right? guy, Meyer, though, he has, to, he has to show the country how much he's feeling it. You know what I mean? They're all looking at him and waiting, oh, does he really care? You know what <laughs> I mean? When they lost to Japan, he had to completely, almost, he was like, a, you know, a, an executive of a Japanese bank that's failed. <laughs> and, he ha- and they have to sort of cry. <laughs> you get these men in their 70s kind of having to cry in front of a press conference. But just, the, and the, the one thing that I think might keep Schmidt here, yeah, is the fact that I don't see him being given the kind of power, uh, the kind of uh, all-inclusive control. No, it's constant battles. It's constant battles with the clubs. Yeah, and that's that's the one thing that he might be looking at. He like he's a guy who likes to have his ducks in a row, and in Ireland, I think we've been able to to give him that type of environment. I mean, people have been, I think, very accommodating with all of his demands and so on. He goes to England, and it's going to be completely well. Different. Well, it also goes the other way with Joe in that he has a huge influence on the provinces, the women's team, underage. I mean, he is, we've talked about this before, but the, what the job we see him do with the Ireland team is one part of it, but more than any coach we've ever had in rugby uh, at the national level, he's involved in so many. Oh, he goes in the, he, he goes to he, club he, talks. He, he, he does school stuff. He does nights. these Q&As in schools, rugby. His son, I think, plays with Terran or something like that, you know, yeah. is involved. He's, he turns up at some of those games. Yeah. I'm sure he do all that in England as well, though. You know, I mean, it's just the same. I'm sure, you know, he's a kind of a community-minded guy or whatever. Mm-hmm. He's, he, he, he likes to put a bit back. He'd do all the same things if he was magic. No, my, my point is, Joe Schmidt's the best value for money the IRFU have ever spent. Oh, yeah, I, I wouldn't disagree. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disagree with that all, at all. We all want to keep him And by the way, he made, I think he made a few errors in that game. And he's, he's made errors before in games we've won. Just like any coach, but they just they weren't fundamental ones. What they were weren't the fun- fundamental to the, the loss. Oh, the, sorry, the errors he made in this defeat weren't fundamental. Well, in this defeat, maybe, maybe, I don't know if it was down to him, but I think the decision to have a passive defence early in the game, whether or not it's good at times to have a passive defence, in the first five minutes of a World Cup quarterfinal, I think all the other aspects to a rush defence are beneficial in that it puts those other players, the Argentine players, under pressure. Suddenly it's down to them having to react on instinct as opposed to being able to look up and have a little bit of time, gain 10 yards, get to the next row, kind of settle into the game. Uh, whereas a rush defence it just means you're up for it. And it also, I think it gets players firing a little bit more. I think it really suits Irish players to be charging at their opposition as opposed to just drifting off and thinking about things a little bit. What do you think then? I mean, I would agree with all that. But why do you think... What's the basis of the decision to not do that? I don't know, but it, certainly on the, on, for the first try, 
uh, Robbie Henshaw came up. Dave Kearney and Rob Kearney were much deeper. Well, Rob's the full back, so maybe he was covering across. And, and, but, but even before them, there were, there were another couple of players there. Heaslip and could have been Earls were outside Henshaw. And they hadn't, they hadn't pushed up as quickly as he had either. So it was this split between all these five guys in the outside back positions who all seem to be doing something separate to each other, which yeah. is just awful. I, I th- in general, our defence was very passive. There was another time where Mike Ross was the leading defender, as in he was leading the line and there was guys behind him. He's the slowest guy in the yeah. team. Uh, just last word on, that, on this one, Simon. What do you think of Murph's idea that the Six Nations have been demeaned? The previous Six Nations haven't been demeaned, I don't think, because each tournament, as we've seen with this World Cup, it's in its own little bubble. It's got its own momentum. Um, teams win or one or two games and suddenly look way better than other teams. I Like this idea that Argentina are way better than Ireland and will beat them the next time they play, I still don't buy that. I think that first try really set the tone for the whole tournament. That was an Irish side with all those losses that needed to start that game well. We needed to be in it for the first 20 minutes. It needed to be nip and tuck. And by normal standards, that's what would have happened. From that moment on, all those guys who were doubting, well, we don't have Paul O'Connell, O'Manley, O'Brien, etc., now it's really an issue. Now it's ten times the issue it was before we started this Simon game. needs Argentina to give us just Plus, one. I, I, I do think in the future, now six, our next six nations, we'll we have talk about change. it completely differently. England and France collectively are at their lowest ebb, maybe ever. Like Nearly always England or France are up at the level of the top three Southern Hemisphere teams. Both of them are now, like they're nearly the worst, besides Italy, they're nearly the worst two teams in Europe. Simon needs just one more beating in a World Cup from Argentina to finally convince him to give them the credit they deserve. Well, we spoke to all the ex-internationals after the TV show. That's Dennis and Donald and Shane, and they were all really worried about the Ireland team. And I, I was going into that game far more concerned than I would have been if I hadn't spoken to all those. And those guys know, they just know what it's like in a setup like that when you lose Sexton. Yeah, hopefully we're not going to lose Joe Schmidt um, after all this to England. We have, unfortunately, officially today, I say we, Irish Sport has lost one of its really top coaches. Billy Walsh has resigned as head coach of the IBA's high-performance unit. This is just a couple of days after helping the lads win three medals at the World Championships, including Michael Conlon's gold medal, first ever gold for uh, one of our male boxers in the world. Since February this year, I've been engaged in a process with the IABA to secure my future as head coach with the High Performance Unit. A a protracted process that went on for eight months included numerous high-level meetings that resulted in various proposals. In August, a fair proposal was developed under the auspices of the Sports Council. That was acceptable and fair, but then not subsequently ratified by the IABA. I was hopeful in recent weeks that a final proposal arising out of an approach in late September by the IABA would lead to a successful conclusion, but unfortunately it didn't. He says then, regrettably, the IABA have not made it possible for me to continue on in the role as head coach. He then says some nice things about the rest of the coaches, and he says, I have the utmost faith and belief in them, having worked alongside them for many years. I'm certain our boxers will go to Rio in fantastic shape, ready to compete with the world's best and hopefully win medals. And all the, I don't know if he mentions medals, but it's performed at their very best. Uh, so that's the story that was flagged uh, a couple of weeks, a few weeks back, has come to fruition. Unfortunately, Bernard Dunn is ready to talk to us about this one. Bernard, I was about to call it a bombshell. Maybe it's not, seeing as it was flagged, as I mentioned. But what's your initial reaction to the news that Billy Walsh is gone? I suppose it's surprise and disappointment um, kind of rolled together. Um, surprise that Billy's actually gone. Um, I, I know he was looking for certain things and um, you know, I thought it could have been some sort of, you know, give and take between the association and himself. But, but obviously they couldn't reach an agreement and he's, for me he's taking a step down by going, by going away and training the, the American um, ladies team where he was actually training one of the the best teams in, in world boxing by training the, the, the Irish amateur team. 
Yeah, he said that he, I mean, he, he said in Radio 1 this afternoon, he shed tears over this decision. This isn't something that he would have taken in any way lightly. Yeah, you know, and it's, you know, Billy Billy's been a great leader for the, for the team. Um, but it is a team, and the team will have to move on. Um, you know, there are, there, there, there are good people still there in terms of Zara. Um, you've Eddie Bulger. Um, and you can really have coaches from who have produced all these top quality boxers who've, who've gone on to the high performance team who are, who, who may be looking at this as an opportunity for them to step up and, and to take control of the, the Irish amateur boxing team. So it sounds like you're not, oh, well, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Most of us looking from the outside would be blaming the Irish Amateur Boxing Association for this, for not doing all they can, everything in their power to keep Billy Walsh. Do you agree with that line or think that there's two, two, two sides to it? I think there's only so much you can give give to a person to convince them to take a job or to stay in a job. Um, you know, you, you I suppose you can also not be held to ransom. Now, I would have loved to see Billy stay, um, and I'm not privy to the, the finer details of, of of negotiations and what it was about. So we're only kind of going on, you know. Hearsay and kind of guessing. Well, autonomy certainly seems to be a big one. That he wasn't, he never got to the point. Well, there's also the issue that it seems like he he wasn't financially recompensed as much as we would have thought that he should be for somebody who's given so much to Irish sport, and also that he never really had full autonomy over who he was picking for various teams and how he wanted to do things. Um, it's you know it's a tough one to call. You know, do 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 you give someone complete power? Um, do you like? It seemed to be working as it was. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure of the friction that was there between Billy and the association. He will be a great loss, without a doubt. He's um, he's been a fantastic leader, and his his rapport with the with the with the boxers was second to none. Um, but you know, we've we we can sit here and you know and and argue about this, and you know, debate you know whether he should or should not um, stayed. But the, the fact of the matter is, he's gone, and as as a boxing nation and as a team, they need to move forward. So we, we can't keep looking back, you know. And, and this team is, is is producing medals left, right, and centre, and I'm sure they will continue to do so. Um, unfortunately, without Billy. Yeah, is there a concern though that you you actually need to look back? You need to look at what has gone wrong here, that's led to this guy leaving. The other coaches you're talking about, the, you're talking about the guys who will step forward now and see this as a, their opportunity. I'm sure. Who's already in the setup? But is, is, is there a fear that is, is there a fear that Zor, Yeah, but is there a fear that Zor might go? For example, might say like Billy Walsh is a guy who, who I've worked with so closely over the years, and I don't like what's happened here. I'm gone as well. I think I think I don't know. I, I think this whole thing was about um, Billy and what Billy wanted, and, and not so much about Zor and what Zor wanted. Um, so I think Zor, you know, and I'm sure they all have their own kind of contracts and and working relationships within the association. So I think I, I've never heard Zor being talked about going over to the states. And <laughs> um, so maybe that's a question you'd ask him and what what his um, direction he's going to take. Do you think Billy's been given too much credit then for the work of other people? No, I think Billy deserves the credit that he's received without doubt. Um, but but ultimately, you know, there, there's no one guy responsible for the success of this boxing team. I've just been there's been great guys there before, um, and I'm sure there will be there will continue to be um, 
really good coaches coming through the system that will that will help guide the boxers. Um, and, and in reality, that's what they're doing. They're guiding the talent. Right? The, the talent is being produced all over the country before it gets into the high performance setup. Um, so, like you know, we as long as we keep producing boxers around the country um, and allowing them um, access to, I suppose, high performance units. They, they should continue to flourish and win medals. Are you concerned about the timing of it at all, Bernard, that we've just had Michael Conlon win this gold medal, first male gold medal, Joe Ward absolutely amazing in the World Championships as well. They're, they're all getting... Sorry, yeah. I was Billy Walsh and I was looking to negotiate a, a new deal and get control. It, it was the perfect time for him to do it. You know, <laughs> while the team was winning stuff and, you know, and with big champions coming up, it was a time, if you're going to pull the trigger on something, it was... I don't think he could have picked a better time. Well, well of course, but, but surely those are all uh, factors that lead back into what we talked about at the start, that he should have been given whatever he wanted, unless it was crazy demands. It sounds like, I mean, the, the reports, again, were, the, but, we're, sorry, we're, just one second, the, 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 the reports we were hearing in a, a couple of months ago were that the, the sort of salary on, he was on wasn't anything, um, didn't seem to be particularly high salary, he didn't have any benefits like pensions and all this kind of stuff, which he is going to get over in the US, uh, if we're to believe the reports that he's been doing this if, for a if, number if of years. If it was as simple as that, well, then I think Billy should have been, you know, you know, looked after. But I don't think he can give anybody um, anything that they want just to keep them in a job. You know, and, and like, let, let's, let's be realistic here, you know, but I, come back to the point, I think Billy is going to be a, a big loss and I think he, he has been a great leader. But we need to, you know, focus on what's important here, and that's the boxers. You know, and making sure that, you know, when we need to talk with them and make sure they're happy to move on with whoever comes on, you know, whoever comes on board to replace Billy. But they've all, we talked to Michael Conlon, for example, when this story first came up, and he was singing Billy's praises and talking about how important, how central a role he's had. So this won't affect the boxers, you don't think? Um... I don't think so. I think they're so focused. You know, when you're a boxer and you're getting into the ring, you're so focused on yourself and you're so driven um, that, you know, it'll, it'll, be a, it'll be a bit of a distraction, but they'll move on. And you have to move on. Now, I, I do think, it's, it, as I said, it's, it's a loss to boxing. It's, it's a loss to the Irish amateur team. But, like, you know, again, I'm, I'm trying to be philosophical about it here and say we're going to move on, we're going to continue winning, and we're going to continue... Like it's not like we're not going to win medals, you know, just because Billy's not there. Um, but I do think, you know, it would have <laughs> it would have been helpful to keep him there. All right, listen, Bernard, absolutely brilliant. Thanks a million. No problem. All right, well, uh, I'm a little bit surprised at Bernard's take on it there. Just uh, I don't know. I generally got the sense that there was just such respect for Billy Walsh within the game that uh, there was there was widespread support for him in his stance, or certainly there was uh, widespread feeling that everything should be done to keep this guy in the job. But Bernard clearly feels that on the power side of things, that maybe it's not healthy for one person to have that much power within hmm. an organization. I don't know. And that person is Billy Walsh. I'm inclined to think <laughs> maybe they should. Yeah. And and we can talk all we like about the great tradition of Irish boxing dating back to, you know, Melbourne. Um, but <laughs> that is not actually the case. Yeah. And a point uh, here, sorry to cut across you, but just why it's in my head that the it's not the case. And what, has helped Irish amateur boxing so much in recent years is the high performance unit which was set up via the sports council and the sports count the, the deal that he initially thought he had agreed was signed off on by the sports council that's what he's saying in the statement that he agreed something with them that he thought would be ratified by the IBA and they said no so it's the amateur boxing association 
for whatever reason not feeling that uh, that they can sign off on this on this thing whereas the uh, the sports council who put the high performance unit in place were ready to go on it yeah it's a, just uh, it's a bit of a disaster really it is and like look at what happened before, look at the 40 years before Billy Walsh came in and look at what's happened since and I mean I think you can talk about I mean there, there this always happens you know look at uh, all of the uh, assistant managers at Manchester United that were the real reason behind uh, Alex Ferguson winning all those championships. I mean, it's it's the oldest trope in the book that ah, well, you know, what's he doing really? You know, like well, what's he what's he actually doing? It's it's the assistant coach that's, that that's got all the plaudits. You know, yeah. like it's, that's just not the case. It's it it, it it's maybe there is someone there tailor made to be the you know the Paisley to Billy Walsh's Shankly, but you know, I'd. I'd I, I would I would much rather I would have paid whatever it took to keep Billy Walsh and not have to try and find out the answer to that question. The Irish Times Second Captain's Football Podcast is out today again. That's Yeah. They have asked for that, really. Well you can laugh. I was the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here? You're showing me, man. Well, we're going to talk about uh, well, a little bit about rugby, actually, in the football podcast. Why not? Uh, surely there's a massive uh, thirst out there for further rugby chat, which hasn't yet been sated. Uh, by everything we've talked about so far, it's not just rugby. Oh, and it's rugby and football. This, the two sports, how they relate to each other in this country, and also we're going to talk about Jurgen Klopp, who made his debut in the Premier League on Saturday. Uh, and here we'll hear how that went, and a few other things besides. Sounds great. We're going to share some of the pain now with our Scottish brothers and sisters. Tom English of BBC Scotland is. Going to react, Scotland. Well, t- uh, uh, Tom, I should say, you can tell us what the reaction has been in Scotland. We played some of the audio earlier on from the Radio Five live commentary. Seems absolutely staggering. Really, what's the reaction been? Oh, fury, fury uh, all round. Fury at the referee, and and I think now a bit of kind of self-examination in terms of yes, Scotland were very badly treated by Craig Joubert, but it's two minutes to go on the clock. They have a line-out. If they catch that line-out, the chances are they're in a World Cup semi-final. Mm. They went for a risky throw, not to the front or the middle. They went for a risky throw in, in pouring rain to the back of the line-out. They made a mess of it, and that set off the chain of events that led to the, to the winning penalty. They catch the ball, and they're in the World Cup semi-final. Oh, it sounds painful Don't even me. listening to you talking about it, Tom. But, uh, I know, I know, yeah. I know. It's, it's terrible. But we were, you know, we were listening to this in, in the car. We played some of the audio. We were listening actually in the car on the way back from, from Cardiff to catch our flight home from Bristol. And it was, it was amazing on, on, on Five Live as it happened. In fact, it's one of those things where, where radio is maybe better than TV in that uh, I don't think a lot of the TV cameras actually caught Craig Joubert running off the field. Before we get to him running off the field, just the decision itself for him not to, um, for him to award the penalty to Australia. The big consternation from a lot of people in Scotland is that he didn't go to the TMO. But from what we're hearing today, uh, it seems uh, different people have different takes on this, but I, I don't think he was actually entitled to, by the rules, um, by their strict adherence, to go to the TMO on that. No, he wasn't. He wasn't allowed. I think people are getting at the wrong end of the stick here. Joubert, in that incident, for, for an offside decision, was not allowed to go to the TMO. 
The problem here is not the fact that he didn't go to the TMO. The problem is that he got the penalty wrong. It was an off- accidental offside. It should have been an Australia scrum, not an Australia penalty. So it was the call that was wrong to award the penalty, not the call not to go to the TMO. He couldn't go to the TMO. Uh, and I think this will come out in time. Yeah. It, was a, it was a cataclysmically bad decision by Joubert. One of many, I have to say. I think, uh, well, by our reading of it, I think he could have gone to the, at least to the assistant referee. And Well, you can always go to the assistant referee to check things, yeah, exactly. I assume. So he could have at least yeah. maybe got a bit of clarification there. But he, he runs off then, and this is what is really cutting people up. Hastings was going crazy about this. Kenny right, Logan yeah. also says that this guy should never be allowed to referee again. I mean, this is one of the top referees in the world, World Cup final referee last time, and people are saying that he's incompetent and shouldn't be able to, and, and is almost... Uh, anathema to the spirit of the game by running off without shaking hands with people but without confronting the Scottish players yeah well you remember he was a terrible World Cup final referee four years ago uh, and he was terrible last night listen the Australians have gripes as well but winners tend to move on quietly and don't complain mm-hmm. uh, but they would have, they would have if they had lost that match you would have heard plenty from the Australian side yeah he ran off he ran off the pitch uh, didn't shake hands with anybody uh and we haven't heard from him since. Uh, I was, you know, in the aftermath, I thought, okay, maybe, maybe he's, he's been overcome by a desperate need to go to the toilet. Or maybe, or maybe he feels nauseous and he feels he's going to be sick. Yeah. In that instance, he would have got into the dressing room afterwards and said, look, I'm, I apologize, Australia. I apologize, Scotland, for running off the pitch. But here's what happened. He hasn't done any of that. He hasn't been in contact with Scotland to explain why he did it. It was a disgraceful thing to do. You know, I've spoken to Gavin Hastings, Brian Moore, Kenny Logan. I spoke to Peter Wright, the Scotland prop who works for Radio Scotland. All of these guys, you know, hundreds of caps between them. They have said, they've said in their careers they have never seen a referee run off like that in a club game, not to mind the World Cup quarterfinal. Some of the Aussie media is claiming that something was thrown at him and that might have got him moving fairly sharpish. No, no, I was, I was in the stand. I saw a plastic bottle being thrown in the general direction of, of the pitch. Uh, it didn't even reach the pitch, and Joubert was already running off the pitch by the time it happened. So the bottle was thrown in the general direction of the pitch because Joubert was running off the pitch. And Joubert, there isn't, a, there isn't a chance in hell that Joubert saw this bottle. It was nowhere near him. So, um, so that's, a, that's a red herring as well. That's a, uh, I don't know, I'm sure World Rugby or Craig Joubert will come out in time and if they come up with that excuse, then that's, that's, that's pathetic. It's even more pathetic than him running off. Tom, it sounds very much like this is the sort of Thierry Henry moment in Scottish sport, although the, re- the referee is Thierry Henry in this case. Yeah, it is. But, you know, I think everyone is even now at the beginning in Scotland beginning to say, you know, they look at the lineups. Yes, Joubert, he's he, he sinned he sin in Sean Maitland. He shouldn't have done that either. That was a bad error. Um, the penalty at the end, terrible error. But all Scotland have to do is catch a line-out and keep a hold of the ball, protect it for a minute and a half. And if the, and if the Wallabies beat them, they're in the World Cup semi-final. So, yes, there are huge gripes about, about Joubert, but win the line-out. You know, it all goes back to that. I mean, if you said yesterday morning, Scotland were overwhelming underdogs. Uh, there were 9 or 10 to 1 against, 11 to 1 in places. If you said to everyone in Scotland, tell you what, with a minute and a half or two minutes to go, you're going to have a line-out, you catch the ball, you're going to win the World Cup semi-final. They would have fainted with shock, every one of them. 
And that was the reality. And they couldn't close the deal. This, of course, comes in the back of the soccer team imploding largely against Georgia it was the result that really did for them yeah. um, albeit there was that, that late goal uh, against Poland but obviously we we won over here against Germany that night anyway so uh, that didn't didn't make a huge amount of difference it's, it's difficult it was all looking so good it was looking so good for the football team there's this idea that Scotland could shake off the fatalism that its national supporters have for quite a while but after that and now this uh, if I was Scottish I'd be feeling pretty down about myself about, about, about my uh, my sporting teams yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Scotland and the, the football team blew it as well. They had they were put themselves into a very good position to finish third in the group and had a, had a chance of finishing second. But they'd have been happy with third, but they blew it. Uh, you know, in, in Dublin, they performed really badly, and that's when the warning signs started flashing. Even though they escaped with a with a with a draw, and then in Georgia, they completely imploded. They didn't have. They didn't have the nerve. They didn't. Really, they really lost their nerve. And you know, say what you like about about the Republic of Ireland, and it's not. You know, they're not. Uh, they don't play cosmic football. Let's face it. But mentally, they're they are much stronger than Scotland. You know, to to get the kind of results in the manner in which they got them, particularly early in the group, to get you know Georgia, Germany, Poland, late late results all the time. Uh, that shows a mentally strong team, and it shows the Gulf in psychology between Ireland and Scotland. Scotland still are mentally weak. They're too fragile. Okay. Listen, Tom, disappointing stuff, but uh, thanks so much for talking to us. Pleasure. See if you don't get this out with Motherwell, you're a wee mate. Your bags and your desk, boom. Your bags and your desk, boom. I mean it, I'm fucking raging, speaking from my heart. Who would I want in? I've got big Terry Boots here in. Mr. Tate, how you doing? Not too good after tonight. You got the job on a technicality of a legend who recommended you. Take no beep, I take no beep, I take no, I take no, I take no beep. Just what's up, don't try to get so deep. You know me, but I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell me, I can't yell, can't yell, can't yell me. You have lost the fans tonight, you don't deserve the fans. What's it, your fans? You just need to fucking work, you wanna? You are nothing, you are a fool, and you are a waste of time. Good night. Oh, the Guinness Book of Records stuff. Get a grab! Yeah, that's um, it's interesting that Tom was saying the focus has shifted somewhat today from the decision of the referee and the refusal to shake anyone's hand, the dart off the pitch straight afterwards, to Scotland losing that line out. I thought what he was going to say was that it's changed to how heroic the Scottish performance was. Oh, I suppose no. that was already self-flagellation is uh, is one of the key traits that we share with our, mm, our Scottish. With the jocks, the jocks. Of, course, of course. I'm, I'm, I'm not entirely sure about the political correctness of that. But let's let's continue. Uh, I, I, I really, I'm not, I'm not sure. I think it's, I think it's only right. Uh, I mean, you know, New Zealand did run in one of the greatest tries of all time against us. I mean, you know, the 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 reaction the day after was not, God, though, what a try. <laughs> <laughs> that was not our reaction, so I suppose we shouldn't uh, we, we shouldn't be too surprised. It is ridiculous. It seems ridiculous that the fine print of how you how and when you can use a TMO in rugby if you're referee leads to this situation where you actually can't go to the TMO after something like that. You can't go when it's a penalty if not if it's not for foul play, um, which is extraordinary when every little thing is analysed and overanalyzed and certain tries are referred to TMOs now and there's almost no need to 
surely there's got to be a provision there where if it's just the referee decides if it's a big enough decision in the game if you're, he, may, he, he has a quick look he has one look yeah if you're that it. concerned about the flow of the game which is the reason why that's there that you know the, instead of going to everything going for everything it was a trust the referee to use his discretion, right? He has to ref the game. The game has to come in under four and a half hours in length. So just let him decide when he needs to when he needs to make a decision and when he needs to go to the TMO. This is a situation where the entire game is on the line. Obviously, if the TMO is there and he'll help you make the right decision, mm. use the TMO. Heartbreaking. Yeah, no, it's bizarre. Uh, that's pretty much it from this show. Do have a listen to the football podcast. A reminder that we're going to be recording shows in the Sugar Club on Wednesday night in Dublin and we will have them available to podcast. Oh, I'm feeling a little bit better. It's good to talk about these things, I think. For, it's good to <laughs> rabbit on about these things for hours on end. I, don't know. I feel worse. I don't know how long this podcast I think has I feel been, worse. but it feels kind of long. All right, thanks, Murph. Nah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> no, you finished on that? Thank you, all. Oh. Thank you, Ken. Thank, thank you, both. Thanks, Ken. Thanks very much for listening. Take care. We'll talk to you soon. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Market.